are we? Hello? <laughs> we'll see. Yes, more, more applause, please. No. <laughs> well, Mark has um, paused our series on Acts right now to have a, some messages on the Incarnation. Uh, it's an appropriate thing to do. And, you know, if you watch the words, read the words of these songs we're singing, they could, they could preach the message themselves. We're not going to do that, uh, but they could do that. And there was a couple of songs uh, that we did. I just wanted to comment very briefly on uh, some of the phrases. The one song we said, uh, it said, peace on earth, that he had come to bring peace on earth. And it struck me immediately that there's not really a lot of peace on earth since he's been here. So did the song get it wrong? Well, absolutely, it did not. The peace on earth that he brought is the peace that he brings to us. We, we can have peace on earth in the midst of the storm and until the day when he really does bring peace on earth. So that, that's an amazing message. Uh, the other one said that he was veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Now that, that is absolutely an incarnation message that in the flesh we see the Godhead and that, that actually does apply uh, very specifically to what we're going to look at today. So I'm excited uh, to go through these songs. For a long time I didn't enjoy Christmas songs. It just felt like we were taking a break from stuff but that's changed a lot for me in the last few years. Well if you were given a choice, a serious choice, someone gave you the choice between living and dying, a, a real choice right in front of you, what would have to happen? What would they need to do to, to sweeten the pot? What sort of incentive would they need to give you to, to help you choose life? Right, I said that right. That what would they have to do to help you choose life instead of death? Well, you, you might say, not much. You know, after all, we spend a, a large part of our living is dedicated to not dying. When you think about the amount of time we work just to afford medical insurance, right, or to, or to pay the medical bills, um, to buy the vitamins and the prescriptions, or, or the amount of time we spend exercising or thinking about exercising, <laughs> or the things that we've given up, the pleasures we've given up in life, to avoid death. For me, uh, too long ago now, I gave up bluebell ice cream every night with caramel on top and whipped cream on top. Those were the days. And it was sad when I decided that wasn't going to be able to continue. But we spend a lot of our time trying to not die or, or put off death. But Paul, he had another experience. He, he had, uh, when he was in, the, in prison and he was writing the letter to the Philippian church, somehow or another he had some sort of choice in front of him. Dying was ever much as, uh, was as big a possibility as living was. And somehow, I don't know how it was, but, but he could influence that decision one way or another, it appears. And he decided that he would go ahead and live for the sake of this church. To, to help them in their faith. I mean, think about it. For Paul, that is a sacrifice to give up dying. For, because for Paul to live, that means the thorn in the flesh. It means persecution, uh, imprisonment, coldness, hunger. He had a tough life. And so he even said that, that dying would, is more desirable for him, to go on and be with the Lord. But, but he sacrificed that for this church but he did it with a catch. There was, there was incentive that he needed to make that sacrifice. And the catch was that he wanted them to put the interest of others in front of themselves. Within that church, within that community, he wanted the people in there just to put each other's interests ahead of themselves. That was the whole catch. And if and if they would do that, it would be worth it to him to continue to live, to continue with the persecution and all of the troubles that he went through in life. Well, so far it doesn't seem so much like an incarnation message. Uh, 
when I was given the assignment by Mark, I immediately started going through text in my head, you know, the typical incarnation text. And there was one text that I was putting off. It was Philippians 2, 6 through 8. That's actually the text we're looking at today. But I put it off because it's, it's a controversial text. It, um, people that hold different opinions about the incarnation use that text as, as a proof text for their various opinions. So, so group A says, no, this is proof of our opinion. And group B says, no, this is proof of our opinion. And I was really kind of unsure about it all. So I, I was going to avoid that one. But I, I just kept getting drawn back to that as I was trying to study and get some momentum going for the message. And then when I got to the text, when I finally gave up and said, all right, that's the text I'll do. I'll just roll up my sleeves and get it done. I was ambushed. Because what I found out is, is everything that I was thinking that this text was going to be, it wasn't. <laughs> what I mean by that is when Paul puts these three verses out there, he hasn't put them out there to explain the incarnation. I was prepared to come here today and blow away this 2,000-year-old mystery about just how could a God be man. I was going to explain that today. Um, but now I'm not going to because I found that that's not the key meaning of the text. In fact, Paul gives this text as an illustration of how to put the other, uh, another person's interest before yourself. So it's just an illustration. But we're going to look at that today and, and put it in its context and understand it that way. So I, I wanted the text. I didn't necessarily want the topic. But the real reason I didn't want the topic is not just because we couldn't, you know, solve this 2,000-year-old mystery that no other person has been able to solve. The real reason I didn't want to do it is because it is personally convicting. This whole idea of putting others' interest in front of yourself is, for me, a very difficult subject to, uh, to grapple with, especially standing here to grapple with it because I do not do good at this at all. So this is a message, if, if, if it doesn't apply to another person in the auditorium today, it applies to me. And it has been tough to rehearse this and to go through it. And I certainly don't have it solved. But I'm willing to, to accept that God's truth is better than the way I might put together truth. And what God's priority is for me is better than what I might say my priorities are. And so I'm going to ask you to enter into this with me today. No doubt everyone here is better at it than I am, but probably not everyone, uh, probably everyone has some room for improvement. And so I'm going to ask you to, to, in this few minutes that we have today, you know, for at least 10 minutes, or maybe you want to take the whole 90 minutes that we have together here. Thanks, James. James got that. James was with me. Yeah, yeah, it won't be 90 minutes. 75. So I, I would ask you to take a few minutes to, to think about this personally. R regardless of whatever needs you yourself have or whatever priorities you yourself have or, or the things that, that could overshadow this idea of putting someone else in front of me, Take a few minutes to, to put yourself front and center with this verse. Here's a few questions just to maybe kind of get your mind going the right direction. These are questions that I thought of for me, frankly, and uh, so we'll see if, if they're helpful to you. Do I know the people at church? Just as I think of coming into the auditorium, do I know the people here? Can I go up and down the aisles and, and know you? know who you are? Or do the people at church know me? Do others look forward to seeing me? If I didn't show up today, well, maybe, maybe not today, but normal days when I'm not speaking, right? If, if I hadn't shown up, would I be missed, right? Would, would anyone be disappointed that I wasn't there? Do I show interest in others? 
in, in, in these others, in the others in this building? Do I encourage the people in here? Who here do I intend to encourage today or maybe this week? Who here do I intend to care for in some way? Or who in this building, in this room, would, would testify that I had encouraged them or that I was an encouragement to them? How about this? Do I know what's happening in the lives of the people sitting next to me? Am I involved in their life enough to even know what's going on? Or am I just too focused on my own life to be involved in their lives? And the last question is, am I willing to change that? Those are hard for me. Well, as we move into the message today, what we're going to find is that the heart of God is the heart of Jesus, and that is the heart that we should have. In that, in that way, we can be exactly like God, and we're expected to be. So we're going we're gonna to read the text. I, I will ask you to stand here. We're, gonna, we're actually going to read three short texts out of Philippians, and I'll give a little, little couple of lines of commentary in between, but at some point I'll look up and see that you're standing, and that'll help me to move on to the next point. Right? So let's stand together, and we're going we're gonna to begin in Philippians 1, verse 22 through 27. The word of God says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this is Paul talking, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. He doesn't know whether to choose death or life. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So in this part of our text, we see that, that Paul desires death, but for their sake, he will live. And in doing this, in giving up his death, he wants them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now that's a heavy text. So how do you do that? Well, in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, this will be our, our main text today. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only did Paul sacrifice his death for the people, we see here that Jesus is sacrificing his life for the people. Jesus Christ, as God and as man, sacrificially loved his people, and Paul is admonishing them to do the same thing. Our final text, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things, specifically speaking here, he's talking about putting the interest of others first. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst <laughs> above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ 
I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In other words, that he did not continue living in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Notice this imagery of a drink offering. It'll come up again, but Paul said, I am poured out. He's poured out on the sacrifice of their faith. And when that, when that drink is poured out, it's done. It's, you are all in at that point. There's no holding back. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for Paul and his time in prison and these thoughts to the church at Philippi. I pray that you will help us to put ourselves in their seats, to listen to Paul as if he's talking to us directly and to hear the message, to see your heart, to understand it perhaps in a way that we haven't thought about it before, and change us so that we would glorify you in the way we live our lives especially in the way we live our lives for each other. Amen. All right, thank you. First point is that Jesus Christ was never not God. It's a double negative. It's probably driving a few of you crazy right now. Jesus Christ was never not God. I say it that way because I want it it to stick out for us. In in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, our main point, it says, do not merely look out for your own own personal interest, but also for the interest of others and have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6 and part of 7, we have Jesus Christ's attitude, but it's his attitude when he was God, before he was born on earth, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And then in the remainder of that verse, in the next verse, we have his attitude as a man after he became a man. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're using uh, the New American Standard Bible, that Mark uses and presses for, raise your hand. Okay, and if you're using the English Standard Version, which is what I typically use, raise your hand. All right. Well, these two translations, they're poor translations of the text. And, and it, it can foster some of the confusion that comes with this text. They, they, there's, there's four words and I apologize for throwing this Greek out there. I'm by no means a Greek expert, but it's important for this text. And, and it's in morphe, theo, hyparchon, four words. In, form, God, be. That's, that's the Greek, literal Greek. And so the translators have to put that in English. And the New American Standard tries to give us a, a literal word-by-word translation. And sometimes it makes it kind of a staccato, kind of hard thing to read. And here it does that, but it, it, it really confuses things a little bit. The, because it does that, it gives us this sense of a past tense action. And so the New, New American Standard Version will say, uh, although he existed in the form of God, or the English Standard Version will say he was in the form of God. And so it implies that, that at a point in time, he was God. And then at another point in time, he emptied himself 
and became man. And then if we'd kept reading, we would see how he was exalted. And so we're back to God again. And so it gives us this idea of this change that happens in God from, from God to man some way and back to God. We, we kind of know that's not the way, but it's hard to look at the text and understand it differently. This, this one word that is the word be that they translated he existed or he was is really a, a better translation of that is being, right? When you, when you look at the Greek word, just like a lot of our words, it's one spelling can have multiple meanings. And, and if we look at it as a participle, which it could be if, if you know your grammar, a participle is, is a verbal adjective, and so it's describing something. Well, the, the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Bible translate it as a finite verb, which means they make it the main verb of the clause. And when they do that, we say, we say he was in the form of God. If the translator had saw it as a participle, then they would do what the New International Version does, which Mark, what's he call it? The, the nearly inspired version, right? Well, in this case, they got it right. And, and it says, it translates, it translates the word being, which means that being in the form of God. So the idea, instead of the idea being he was God here, and then he emptied himself, and then he became man, the idea is that he was God, he was being God, or when he was being God, or more literally being God, he emptied himself and took on humanity. He never changed from being God. While that was going on, while he continued being God, these things happen. And so it's, it's, an, important, it's an important distinction to be made. There's one other problem there, and it's, it's with the word, the Greek word is morphe, and it's translated form, F-O-R-M. So that he was in the form of God, and in the next verse it says he was in the form of a servant. But the problem with that is that there is no form for God. Right? God is, there's no physical appearance to God. He's, he's a spirit. And so to say that Christ Jesus was in the form of God for, for us is a difficult thing because there is no form of God for him to be in. And like in the next verse to say that he was in the form of a servant, well, he never was actually a servant. All right, we, we'll, we'll get to that more in a minute. But, but there's no physical form or shape of God, so this word form is tough. It's It's talking about before he was man something and Paul has has used the same word to refer to to him being God and refer to him being in the form of a servant so Paul is trying to establish a connection between these two points and the problem is is if we use this literal translation this word form it gets confusing because we would tend to think that okay he was God and then he was a servant, right? But, but we, so we can't take the literal translation. We might take the idiomatic translation. How was this word used in situations like this? And when we do that, we find that the word form was used to, to describe the very, the very essence or the very nature of something. And this works a lot better for us when we understand that, that while being in the very nature God, he, he was taking the very nature of a servant. The, the connection is that in, in the mindset, not in the nature of his being, his being as a God or as a man, but in his mindset, uh, he, was, he was actually God. That is true. He was actually God. He was never actually a servant. But he did have the mind of God, and he did have the mind of a servant. So when he, was, when he was actually God, he had the nature, he had the mind of God. 
That's, that's an easy connection. But, but being God also, he had the nature of a servant, the mind of a servant. And those are, that's actually not two different things. It is the mind of God is the, is the mind of a servant. That's, that's the whole punch to this. But our main point for, for this portion of the text, this first phrase of, of verse 6, is that before he was Jesus the man, he was God. And he didn't stop being God. Point two. Point two is that being God, Jesus Christ put the interest of others first. Being God, before he took on humanity, there, there was a time when he was born in the manger. Right? And before that time, he was God. Now, he was God during that time and after that time, but Paul is specifically talking about before, before he was ever tainted, or before man was ever in the mix, in his pure godness, all right? In his pure godness, he put others first. So if we look at this, the first verse, the first part of the verse, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, it, then it says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Yeah. Two things to remember here from this previous phrase is that we're referring to his state of mind, we're referring to his attitude, not the nature of his being. And this attitude is persistent. It, it doesn't change. He, he didn't have an attitude change at some point in eternity or some point in history. It's always been the same. So we could, we could look at the verse this way. Christ Jesus, it says, who being, thinking, perceiving as God... Right? Instead of saying in the form of God, just think of it this way for now, who, who being and thinking and perceiving as God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, I think the clearest example of, of this idea of grasping equality with God is found in a story when Jesus was with his disciples in, in Matthew 20. And if you remember the story there, they're walking along and the sons of thunder, right? James and John, the sons of thunder, well, their mommy is with them in the crowd, right? And so we have Jimmy and Johnny's mommy comes to Jesus and she says, uh, when you come into your kingdom, let my boys, let one of them sit on your right and one of them sit on your left, right? That was a, a high point in our sons of thunder's life at that point. You know, they're, they're in their late 20s probably and you go ask mom. So when the other disciples uh, caught wind of it, they were, they were not pleased. And now Jesus has these, this skirmish going on. And he says to them this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. So the rulers of the Gentiles, like Caesar... They lord their position over the people. I'm Caesar, that sort of thing. But it is not this way among you, he says. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of, of grasping at the equality of God, or he did not consider equality of God to be grasped, is, is shown in this text. He's like, that's, that's the way the world works. We don't work that way. The Son of Man didn't, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And if, and if you want to be first, you'll be last. And if you want to be great, you'll be a slave. And that's this idea of not grasping. So our text says, Christ Jesus, who, who being and thinking and perceiving as God, was not consumed with himself. 
He wasn't caught up in himself. He wasn't grasping at himself. And as, as God is not, <clears throat> is not consumed with himself, we should not be consumed with ourselves. Well, continuing this same point that, that being God, Jesus Christ put the interest of others first. It says he emptied himself. Continuing in verse 7, Christ Jesus, who being, thinking, perceiving as God, was not consumed with himself, but emptied himself. Now, this is a point of contention. Some would say that by emptying himself, he gave up some of his divinity, right? He, he left some of his godness behind to become man. And so there's a lot of conflict over that. We're not going to engage in that conflict, but I would just comment that I don't think you can be partially God. You can't give up part of God and still be fully God. So I wouldn't subscribe to that. But the point here is not, again, about the nature of his being. The point here is about his attitude, his mindset. And any self-limitation that Christ may or may not have put on himself to come to earth and to be a man is not the point of the text. Right? That's, this text is not addressing that. This text is talking about what's going on in his head. He emptied himself in that he selflessly and sacrificially looked outside of himself. Right? He wasn't staring at a mirror the whole time. He wasn't looking at himself the whole time. He was looking outside of himself at others. He held nothing back. As Paul said earlier, he was poured out like a drink offering. He wasn't grasping at anything. He wasn't hanging on to anything. He was all in. He was all in for the sake of his bride, the church, specifically for his people. And so, Christ Jesus, while being, thinking, perceiving as God, was not consumed with himself, but poured himself out like a drink offering. And then the last part of verse 7 says, taking the form of a bondservant, or as we said earlier, taking the very nature of a bondservant. I had this thought that before there was man, when it was just God, when it was just the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I don't, there, was, there was intense and perfect, pure love, but there wasn't any need for servanthood. Right? I mean, the Godhead is perfect, perfectly fulfilled. There is nothing that God needs, so there's no room in there for for servanthood but when we think of love we have to think of servanthood think think of the greatest uh, pictures of love uh, some that came to my mind were maybe we have a an, an elderly couple and you have an old man who is who is caring for his dying wife as a picture of love right or or maybe it's a mother with a child caring for that child loving that child in these in these cases care and love are practically synonymous. We can, we can get all spiritual, right, and say that, well, the Savior dying on the cross for his church, it's an example of caring love. And there's really not love without caring. But before man came along, I wonder what that would look like. Maybe it was more adoration involved in love, but there was really no, nothing that the Father could do for the Son because they're both perfectly complete. But, but when man comes along, when, when the creature comes along, there is an inherent need in man, always a need. Right? We're never complete. And so for us, there's no such thing as love without service. That does not exist, no matter what our culture may tell us, Right? So taking the nature of a servant for, for God does not mean that he changed. He always had love, and when man comes along, the, the natural expression of love is service, 
There's no change involved there. It, it's what love is. I think of, I think of my daughter. Before I was a father, before she was here, I, I remember contemplating her coming. And, and I would, would imagine what our relationship would be like even before I knew her. Right? And, in, and in that sense, I had, I had sort of the, the nature of a father. But when she came along, I, I truly took the nature of a father. I truly took the mindset of a father. And so to say that he was taking the very nature of a bondservant, Paul is simply describing that, that at, this, at this point in history, even though there's all kinds of you know, theological things where we would not talk about that, but practically speaking, from the human perspective, at this point in history, he took the nature of a servant. God took the nature of a servant. Not that he did not have it before, Right? But, with, but with man, love is automatically service. It's not something that he gained. He always had love, and that love would naturally express itself as service where the creature is involved. Service is a hard, or a servant rather, is a hard concept for us especially for us Americans, right? A true, a true servant is not someone who would serve against their will, right? A true servant is, is someone who's not going to think of their own rights and privileges. It's not someone who's going to grasp at their own rights and privileges, but they're going to pour themselves out for those they are serving. They're going to hold nothing back. That's, that's a true servant, and we should not confuse our American values with biblical values. There is nothing inherently biblical about the pursuit of the American dream. Maybe that should be the main point today. We can't find a chapter and verse that spells out the American dream. Right? It's okay. But if it, if it takes the place of putting the interests of others in front of ourselves, then it's not okay. There are, there are Christians in this world who are not Americans. <laughs> That's heretical in some places, right? So don't confuse American values with biblical values. The Bible is always, always over the culture. Always. The culture bends to Scripture. Scripture does not bend to the culture. Let us not confuse our inalienable rights and the pursuit of our own version of happiness for biblical values. Don't get those confused. As Christ had the attitude of servant, we should have the attitude of a servant. That should be at the top of our value system. That is something that Paul was willing to live for when he really wanted to die. All right, point number three. Being man, Jesus Christ put the interest of others first. So we're transitioning in the text now. Up until this point, we've been talking about his mindset as God. Now the text has moved to his mindset as man. The only thing that's, is that his mindset hasn't changed. <laughs> He's still putting the interest of others first. Beginning again with verse 6, Christ Jesus, who being, thinking, perceiving as God, was not consumed with himself, but poured himself out like a drink offering, thinking, perceiving, and acting as a servant. You've caught on now that this is my own paraphrase at this point, right? We're, I'm not following any specific version. Being made in the likeness of a man. So Jesus, he did not transform from God to man. He remained God. 
He assumed humanity. He took humanity into his divinity. This is the 2,000-year mystery that we're not going to solve today. But he took it into his humanity. He, he brought it on into himself. He didn't change in his, in his being from God to man. How that works, we'll have to let that be part two. But when it says being made, it's really talking about being born. He was born in the likeness of a man, and it uses this word likeness, which does leave for us a little bit of ambu- ambiguity. He's, he's like man in some ways, but in other ways, he's definitely not like man. He is like us in that he is truly human. He's unlike us in that he is also truly God. He, he is like us in that he is truly human, but he is unlike us in that we don't act like humans. We don't act like the way we were created. Right? We're full of sin, and when sin comes in, inhumanity comes in because we're behaving in a way that a human is not to behave. Trying to make sense of this point is incomprehensible. Uh, It's been a question since Jesus was here on earth, and he said, who do people say that I am? Think of this. In the womb, he was acknowledged by John the Baptist, who was also in the womb. That's unlike most men, right? He hungered, yet he fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he is the living water. He was tired, yet he is the rest for the weary and the burden. He paid a tax, yet he used a fish to do it. He prayed, yet he hears prayers. He wept, yet he wipes away every tear. He asked where Lazarus was, yet he called him from the realm of the dead. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, but he ransomed the world by his own blood. He was weak and wounded, yet he healed all of their diseases. He was given vinegar to drink, yet he turned water into wine. He surrendered his life, but he had the power to take it again. He was called a curse to remove the curse, and he became sin to overcome sin. It's a great mix of human and God. Christ Jesus, while being, thinking, perceiving as God was not consumed with himself, but poured himself out like a drink offering, thinking and perceiving as a servant, born like a man in some ways and not like him in other ways. As a man, he put the, others, uh, the interest of others first, And it says in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a human, he humbled himself in obedience to God. To the point of dying, even dying on the cross. Notice this, as a human, he was obeying God but he was serving others. So when we talk about putting the interest of others first, we're not talking about obeying others, right? It's not your wish is my command. That's not the way this works. It's it's in a mature way, obeying God and understanding, perceiving the interests of others and putting those interests above our own. Even while he was God, he did not make much of that status. He did not try to get more or throw his weight around, lording it over others. He emptied himself. He held nothing back in taking the attitude of a servant. He humbled himself, unlike any other man. He was the true man, the man who did humble himself and obeyed God to the point of death. That's, that's the other thing that we have to look forward to is obedience to God implies death. That's where God leads us. If we're going to live, we're going to have to die. That's the journey that God takes us on. 
It requires death to self. It is, it is taking up our cross. And so if we are avoiding self-denial, right, if, we're, if we're grasping on to that American dream, as culture would have us do, we are avoiding, we are denying God. We'll either deny God or we'll deny self. But if we are for self, we are against God. Point four. True humanity, godly humanity, is obeying God and serving others. So let's wrap this up. Jesus Christ was, he is God from all eternity. That has never changed. He did not take on humanity until that day in the manger 2,000 years ago. But when he did, that, that incarnation, that inexplicable mingling of the holy, majestic God with the flesh and blood dust of the earth is, from our perspective, a humiliation. For this royal, majestic God to become man, that, that's a humiliation. And, and from our perspective, that's a proper way to look at it. But from his perspective, it is a natural, loving, enthusiastic expression of sacrifice. Right? We, we see him coming down to put our interest above him as a humiliation. Properly so, but he does not view it that way. To him, it's the natural expression of love. It's just, it's what love does. He didn't, he didn't have to go through this wrestling in his mind and, and set this as a, as a decision, okay, I'm gonna do this. He didn't have to do that. Because he is loved, that's what he did. It wasn't a problem for him like it is for us, like it is for me. I, I'm still wrestling with this. I'm thinking, boy, you know, when I get done today, next week I'm going to have to behave differently. I resist that, frankly. His nature is to sacrificially love people, and if he was to do any other thing, it would be unnatural. Now, Jesus Christ is a man. He is also the true man. He lived like man is supposed to live. He, he lived like man is supposed to live. He lived as the true image of God, as man was supposed to be. And if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to live a godly life, then we will obey God, and in obeying God, we will serve others. We will put the interest of others above ourselves. Specifically, these others. Right? The, the text is talking about the people in this building. It's, it's talking to the church at Philippi. He wasn't, it's not a missional text. Yes, we are to love our enemy as ourselves, absolutely. Yes, we are to look out for the poor and needy, absolutely. Paul is not talking about that in the text. That is addressed in other places. In the text, he is talking about you, the church, looking out for each other. Sometimes it's easier, perhaps, to go you know, down to Skid Row and look at someone than to look to our right and to our left in these pews. Chairs, rows, right. It's, as I said before, it's not about us granting wishes. It's about us putting each other's true interests before our own, which requires some maturity. This becomes a priority, not a full-time job. I'm not, I'm not saying we all quit and go into ministry, but a priority. Now, if, if, if you are right now rationalizing why you can't do this, you know, if if things are popping up in your head that are giving you a way out right now, like me. If that's happening, then those reasons need to be adjusted. That's where you need to focus your attention is on those reasons. Remember, 
I have to remind myself of this all the time. We are not in the church voluntarily. We, we did not, out of, because we are good people, decide to come here, right? We are called out of the world by God into his church. This is our family. This is our immediate family. That is the way it is. That is the way God has designed it. And we have a responsibility to one another. But it's a good responsibility. It's to look out for the interest of each other. Right? It's, it's as good for the giver as the getter. Well, perhaps you're not a Christian here today. Maybe this message isn't resonating with you. And there's really only one thing to do if you're not a Christian, and that is repent. That's the, the only choice you have as a non-Christian is to throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. If we had continued reading in our text, it would have said, for this reason also, because he died on the cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If, if you do not know him, then bow to him, repent today. Well, if you have questions about these things, I am more than happy to talk. And John, Mark, the elders, there'll be people up here, I assume we're gonna have a time of prayer uh, that you could talk to about this. Um, but John, I'll turn it over to you now. Yeah, if you'll stand up with me, if everyone will stand with me.